listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Today we're going to be continuing in our series called The Essentials. We've got handouts for everyone. If you did not get a handout, raise your hand and one of our hospitality team members is going to be ready to bring you. I said, we got some hands. So we, we, when they come back, oh, here we go. We've got, a, uh, we've got a hand. Just keep them up. Scott's going to come back. If you say, I missed last week, but I'd like to be a part of the intro, then we've got the handouts for the intro out back. You can grab one of those, listen online. Yeah, keep them up. I know it feels weird, but he's coming, and uh, he'll be back in just a second with those. Uh, you can grab some of the leftovers, and, uh, and they will be online. You can follow along. But we're going to continue our study called The Essentials. I promise they're handouts. Here he comes. Keep them up there, Scott. We're going to jump in. Last week, we started a series that's going to break down each one of the eight essentials of our doctrinal statement. We looked in Jude, and we saw how that, that while Jude was ready and excited to talk to his, to his readers about the common salvation, he, he wanted to write about exciting things, about who we are in Jesus and, and how that unites us together. But he said, but I find it necessary at this time to write to you to appeal that you contend for the faith. Because there are folks out there who are trying to break down the faith and pervert it with error. That faith that was passed down from the, from the prophets, from the, from the apostles through Christ and down to us. That information about what God has been doing throughout human history. I need you to recognize that we've got to strive to, to, to contend for. We've got to stand on that mountain and refuse to let error overtake us. And so we've got eight doctrinal essentials that we as a church require. If you're going to be a covenant partner, if you're going to partner with us in this venture that we call Oasis Church, and by the way, we had a great crowd on Wednesday night that came out to find out what it means to be a covenant partner. You, you wanted to see what that meant and what that required. If, if you weren't able to attend that, just be on the listen because right after the first of the year, we'll do another one of those on Wednesday night and give others an opportunity. But we had several that come out. And one of the things that we require from everyone who is gonna be a partner is that we be in agreement without reservation on these Eight essentials. If you weren't here last week, we got plenty of these. I would hope you would grab one so that you would always know when it comes to what's most important, what's most essential, these are the things that we will need to be agreed upon. Now, anybody can come to Oasis Church and have any belief they want to. In fact, they can come to Oasis Church and not even believe there is a God and we welcome them here. But when it comes to partnering, locking arms with one another, we've got to be agreed on these eight. In fact, these are eight essentials that have stood the test of church history. In fact, these are essentials that the church has contended for for over 2,000 years. And we're going to look at number one today. Essential number one says this, 
The Bible alone is authoritative. It is inspired and inerrant in the original documents. The Bible alone is authoritative. It is inspired and inerrant in the original documents. I've got a slideshow that I created. Hopefully, it will provide you with all the answers to the blanks that you have on your hand. You say, Kevin, this feels like a classroom this series is starting to. And you know what? It really is. It's less a sermon and more a teaching so that we know what we're contending for and we're contending for the same things and hopefully you'll learn why. We want to break this essential down as we go through and explain what we mean by the Bible alone is authoritative, it's inspired and inerrant in the original documents. First, the Bible alone. What do we mean when we say the Bible alone? We believe that Christian belief in and about God is based in Scripture. What we believe about God, how we are to believe in God, we believe is based in Scripture. There are a lot of, if you will, if you will, holy books out there. And I use that word holy very loosely. Most world religions have their own scriptures, if you will. The, the major religions in our world, Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, Kabbalism, the Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, Scientology, they all have their own sacred writings. But as Christians, we believe, and it is, a, it is an essential belief that says, while there are other books from other religions on the shelf at the bookstore, we firmly believe that the Bible alone is authoritative. The Bible alone is inspired. The Bible alone is inerrant. The Bible alone is what is the basis on which we believe in and what we believe about God. Now, there are other rival bases for belief. There are other rival bases for belief. Let let me do this as an illustration. Okay, come here for me if you will. I need you to come here and you're going to represent for me the scripture. Come on, you'd be right up here. From the beginning of Christianity, the scripture has been seen at the top of the basis of belief. When those scriptures were handed down through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, the scripture was understood to be at the top of that list of when we come to what it is that we believe and how it is that we're to understand what God expects for us and from us, we've got the Bible, the scripture. But as the church progressed and they began to express how that we're to understand the Bible, Zachary, come here, if you will then the church began to establish some norms, some things that we always do and how we always understand these things. And this, come up here to the second step, this is called tradition. And and tradition began to also be a basis of belief, but tradition was always subject 
to the Bible, to scripture. Tradition helped us and tradition can be great and very expressive and it can give us all types of, of, of ways to think about what the Bible has said, but the Bible was always king and tradition always subject. Then around the 181900s, something began to happen in Europe that, uh, that, that, that caused a great stir in society. It was called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment began to happen in the 18th and 19th centuries in Europe. And, and those Enlightenment philosophers began to say, you know what? We've been looking at the Bible all this time, and that's an ancient book. And this tradition, it's gotten a little corrupt here lately. And we believe that there's something more, and he's hiding right now. And Nicholas is going to be my expert. Come on, Nicholas. I know you were hiding. Come on, man. Here's, here's what happened in the 18th and 19th century. Experience and reason began to show up. And, and a fellow by the name of, uh, of Descartes made a statement that says, I think, therefore I am. And so reason came onto the scene and reason began to be understood as a part of this basis for belief. The scientific method the scientific arena began to be understood as, as, a, as a way to experience and reason out these things that we're, that we're wrestling with about our eternity. Here's the problem. We've got three very unequal bases of belief. And throughout church history, tradition all of a sudden stepped up on the same plateau as the Bible. As the church began to grow and unfortunately became more and more corrupt, the things the church was saying about the Bible became equal with the Bible so that when particular individuals with authority made statements, the church began to see those statements on the same level with the Bible. But then as time progressed... Tradition and the Bible had to take a back seat to experience and reason and other ways of understanding humanity and how we were to understand our purpose and our reason for being, even the means by which we came here in the first place began to be understood through reason alone. And the Bible had to take a bottom seat to, well, at least tradition we understand. The Bible really, is it even true? Can we even validate it? How is it any different from any other book? So we understand it's helpful, but we've got to set it apart. At least we understand tradition. But reason, that is what, experience, that's how we're to understand our purpose. And then the next thing you know, 19th, 20th century comes along and folks said, you know what? We really, if you think about it, don't even need the Bible anymore because that's just a bunch of hullabaloo. And quite frankly, if we don't have the Bible, then what in the world are we bothering with tradition before just to please mama, just to please grandma? Reason reason now experience that's how we're to understand our world 
And wouldn't you argue that this is where we are today? Oh, yeah, we have the ability to reason and to think. We have the ability to experience. But should this decide how we live our lives? If it does, then how you live your life and how I live my life is completely up to me. Thank you, reason. You may go have a seat. Oasis Church and those who have maintained Christian orthodoxy throughout the centuries understand that the Bible alone, not tradition and not reason. Tradition is not bad. Experience is not bad. But experience and tradition must submit to Scripture. Scripture always must be king. So, what are the rival bases for belief? Tradition, religious or culture, reason, scientific observation, and experience, the feeling and perception that we have. Matthew 4, verse number 4, Jesus says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Who was he saying this to? He was saying this to the enemy, the devil, who was tempting him during his earthly minute. Man's not going to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God The scripture alone is authoritative. Colossians chapter number one, verse number 24 and 25, Paul is expressing his his motivation for being that, uh, that champion of the gospel when he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. How could you rejoice in suffering, Paul? In my flesh, I'm being, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Christ is not here to continue to suffer for those that he loves. His suffering is complete. And I get the opportunity of continuing to reflect that suffering that he did for us once for all. I get to do it for the ones that he loves. His body, the church, verse number 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. For what, Paul? To make the word of God fully known not to teach you tradition not to establish tradition not to teach you about reason and experience but so that I might pour into you the word of God for it alone is a lamp to our feet and a light to my path the Bible alone not the Bible and another book not the Bible and what a preacher tells you. The scripture alone is God's word delivered to us. So the Bible alone. And then we said the Bible alone is authoritative. What is this that we mean when we say it's authoritative? Authoritative means that the Bible is our source of revealed truth and the grid by which all purpose or proposed truth or belief must pass. It is our source of revealed truth. Now, I changed that from your handout. I originally had it that it was the source of revealed truth, but I didn't really like the way that sounded because the source of revealed truth is God himself. God is truth and is the source of truth. But our source to the revealed truth that we have about God is the scripture alone. It has 
authority. In Hebrews chapter number one, the first few verses, the writer says, in, in times past, God has spoken to us through the prophets, through visions and dreams and all other means. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, Jesus. How do we know how God has spoken to us by Jesus, but through the words that have been recorded by God through those authors who wrote on his behalf? The Bible alone is authoritative. It is our source of revealed truth. What do you mean by revealed truth? I mean revelation. I don't mean the book of Revelation. I mean Revelation. There's two types of Revelation. This revealing of something previously unknown. We see general Revelation in our world. Creation. We look around us and we go, you know what? Something's got to be behind all of this. Science will try to tell us, and I mean they dig in on this random selection, this evolutionary Uh, theory of existence it is absolutely ridiculous this theory and one of the main ways we see is that the smaller you look in the microscope the smaller an organism you see the more complex it gets so like the harder down you look and and years ago we could only see so small and yet technology thank you technology and science you're so awesome at proving the creator because the smaller and smaller and smaller you get the more moving parts there are well that just kind of exploded into existence are you kidding me i mean if we were just a degree closer to the sun we would burn up. If we were just a degree further away from the sun, we would freeze. If we weren't on our axis tilted and spinning at just the perfect speed, we could not exist. If the gravitational pull was just a little more, we'd be flat on the ground, unable to survive. If it was just a little less, we'd be floating away and our physical system could not operate. Are you kidding me? The Bible is the source of our understanding. The Bible is our source of revelation. General revelation, we can look and see, wow, there's something to it, but it doesn't tell me who that is and what he's done. Mankind and and human history, that tells us that something more is going on, but it doesn't tell us everything that's going on. Special revelation looks like when God speaks And folks would hear when prophets would speak on behalf of God, when they would dream dreams and write them down as God would lead them. When Jesus came and spoke in human form and was revealing God to us. And when these authors wrote the words of scripture gives us special revelation. The Bible alone is our authoritative source of revealed truth. And it is the grid by which all proposed truth or belief must pass. What do you mean by that? Well, something may be true apart from biblical evidence. What's something that we know is true that's not in the Bible? What? Gravity. Great. There's nothing in the Bible about gravity, about how what goes up must come down, right? Nobody said anything about it. Something can be true apart from the biblical evidence. And that's great. Here's the deal though. Here's the other side. But no truth can contradict scripture. 
What we mean by the Bible alone is authoritative. That means you can learn truth outside of the Bible, but nothing can be true if the Bible contradicts it, meaning truth can't contradict Scripture. Here, let me give you an an example for this. Uh, Jesus, when he was going to his disciples in a difficult scenario, walked out to where they were. You say, that's not such a big deal. Well, it kind of is because they were out in the middle of the sea and he walked on water. The Bible says that Jesus walked on water. True, right? But you can't, why? Anybody ever tried to do that? Walk off the edge of the dock and what do you do? You fall down. Every time you fall into the water, no matter, you can't even, I used to run off the end of the dock thinking maybe I could just get a couple of steps. You ever done, am I the only dumb one that's ever done? Thinking I might could step one foot down and get planted just to make one step. You can't, that one foot goes down every time. You're not fast enough because gravity is true. But when the Bible says Jesus walked on water, you know what? It's true. And somebody says, well, that can't be true. Oh, yeah, it can. Well, gravity, well, I don't care what gravity says because the Bible trumps. Now, you go, Kevin, they're going to make fun of you at the university. Yeah, you're probably right. Except if the university is honest, if the university is honest, they will never be able to prove that Jesus' resurrection didn't happen if they will be honest about how they determine all other historical events, the validity of them or not. So I'm fine with them making fun of me about the fact that I believe in the supernatural because if they're honest, they're not going to be able to prove the most significant event, and that is if Jesus got up from the grave, he can walk on whatever he wants to. He can make whatever he wants to out of water. He can turn whatever he wants to into 12 baskets of leftovers after everybody's eaten all they want if he got up from the dead. And they ain't never going to be able to prove that. If they're honest, they won't be, but they got all the numbers and letters behind their names, so I guess they don't have to be. The Bible alone is authoritative. It might not have all the truth that we can know, but no truth can be truth if it contradicts Scripture. And whatever Scripture says is true, regardless of what we know outside of Scripture. That's what we believe when we say authoritative. Proverbs chapter number 30, verse number 5. The Bible it says of itself, every word of God is true. He is a shield to them that put their trust in him. You know what I say, young person, going off to the university? Believe God's word and get behind him because he'll be a shield to you that put your trust in him. The Bible alone is authoritative. It's inspired. What does that mean? Inspiration literally means God breathed. And it refers to the process by which the Holy Spirit influenced and directed the human authors of Scripture to write down and preserve God's Word to men without error and without violating the personalities of the men who wrote it. When we say God's Word is inspired, we mean that God superintended the writing of his word, whether that was poetry or whether that was narrative or whether that was prose, the, the letter type, whether that was gospel or whether it was uh, apocalyptic literature where in like Revelation and Zechariah and Ezekiel, you read about all of these cosmic things happen. We believe that God superintended. It's God 
breathe. Here's some things that we, that we don't believe. These are false views of inspiration. We don't believe that only part of the Bible is inspired. That's liberalism. That's neo-orthodoxy. There are a lot of people who will be willing to say that the Bible is inspired as long as you don't mean all of it. If only part of it is inspired, then they'll be comfortable. But certainly all of this cannot come from God. Certainly some of this came just because some dude wanted to write this stuff. There are many who believe that the Bible is totally false. But a false view of inspiration is that it is only partly inspired. In fact, we believe that inspiration is, you might want to write this down outside of the, in the, in the outline of your handout. We believe that God's word is inspired in a plenary fashion, P-L-E-N-A-R-Y. That's a word that means all. It's, it's a, a plenary inspiration. It's all inspired. The canon that we have, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, God superintended its authorship. And we believe that God directed. Another false view is that God mechanically dictated the words. Scott and I had a, a great history teacher when we were in high school. He was great because his test came from his notes. And here's how he did his notes. We would sit in class and he would teach a little bit and he would go, okay, next. And we knew that when he said next, that that meant whatever he said, we needed to write down. And we would write that sentence down and he would talk about it. And he'd say, okay, next. And then we would write that down and he would talk. It was awesome. We would just, really, you could check out on the discussion part. As long as you listen for the word next, you could wake up, you could write it down, you study the notes, you pass the test. There are a lot of folks who think that the inspiration of Scripture came as God said, all right, David, if you would sit down and grab your heart, I'm going to give you a few measures of a song I've been thinking about. I've just, uh, I just would love to hear this thing set to music. And so here we go. That's not the way God did it. In fact... God's superintending of much of the scripture caused these men to write what he wanted written about him or allowing them to write what they were feeling about him and never changing the way they wrote. Like God allowing David to express himself by his God-given gift of poetry yet superintending that the poetry he was writing would be authoritative. That the things he was pondering about God were exactly the things God wanted us to know about him. And the things that David said about God, when he was kicking and scratching, I can't believe, were the very thing God wanted us to know that we could experience within our relationship with him. How about that? Isn't that awesome how God can do? That's what we believe. And this mechanical dictation, however, we do believe that when God said, okay, Moses, get ready. I'm going to write some tablets out for you. Don't get all scared when you see that finger start writing on the stone. Some of it actually did come directly from the voice, especially when he would say, prophet, son of man. I'm reading right now in Ezekiel, and there were things that he was saying, son of man, tell this to the Egyptians. Tell this to the Assyrians. And he would say it, and then he would say, thus saith the Lord. Sometimes God did tell him what to write down. But the process known as inspiration was God directing and influencing. Another false 
uh, view of interpretation is that men, not the words, were inspired. It's not that Paul woke up one day and said, I feel inspired. I need to write some things down because God inspired me. No. Paul was moved to write, but God superintended his writing so that it would be exactly what he wanted us to know. Not the men, the words. So when we say we believe in a plenary, all of the scripture being inspired, we also believe in a verbal inspiration, that the Bible is verbally inspired. What the words say matter. So when it comes to translating God's word, it's important that we agonize over the words that we're translating from one language to another because it's the words that matter. So the Bible alone is authoritative and the Bible is inspired. Let me read you some scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out. It's inspired by God and profitable for what? Teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then 1 Thessalonians 2.13 gives us a practical expression of this when Paul writes to this church and says, we also thank God continually for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, When we came to you and we told you what God has said, either through his revelation to me on the Damascus road or through what Jesus had said to the apostles, when we gave you the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. These are words written by real men but they are God's words to you and to me because of inspiration. We believe that the Bible alone is authoritative. It's inspired and it's inerrant. Inerrant, what do we mean? The backside of your handout. Inerrant means that the Bible is without error as originally given by God. Do you realize that the scripture was compiled over 1500 years of time i mean and by people who did not even know one another would not have been able to be influenced or taught by others that were writing and yet they all compile one meta narrative and that is about one god eternally existing in three distinct persons who created us for his glory to have reciprocal love and relationship with us and when we broke that up by sin he in his grace set his heart on redeeming us by his grace so that we might be restored to what he intended but even more than he ever intended originally that is the big picture recorded by numerous authors over a thousand plus years and it's all been maintained within a no error context meaning that no scripture teaches something contrary to another that one scripture says one thing and another goes i don't know about that no it's one 
big, long story that has continuity. And we believe that the Bible is inerrant as it was originally given by God. Inerrancy, however, is limited to the words of the original manuscripts. You go, well, what does that mean? That means that inerrancy does not extend to copies. It does not extend to copy because over time, those first words that were written by the prophets, if they were going to go from this generation to the next, had to be copied. How many of you have ever owned a uh, eight track? Anybody ever owned an eight track? Anybody still playing those eight tracks? Okay, I figured one of you still had that one eight track. You don't. So that album you had on 8-track, you might still have today. In fact, you might have it in cassette. Does anybody have a cassette tape of something that they had an 8-track of at one time? Yeah, awesome. But how are you going to play? Does anybody have a CD of an 8-track that you used to have back in? Andy's, I see that hand. Steve has a CD of an 8 Has anybody downloaded onto their device any music that they have previously owned on a CD and a cassette and an 8-track? Look at that. Why are we doing that? Because over the progress of time, I look at that 8-track, I can hold it up. I can put it on a chain hanging around my neck for nostalgia, but I ain't going to be able to play it. Because over time, things change, things break down, and what do we do? We copy it so that previous uh, generations to come can experience what previous generations had. And over time, those copies developed issues within themselves. Not because of what God said, but because it got handed to us. And now we're responsible for translating it from generation to generation. And so what are we going to pick up? We're going to pick up something called variance. When it comes to the copies of the Old and New Testament, there are thousands of them. We'll mention a little bit more about that in a minute. But a variant is what you have when you have a copy of God's Word, and then you have another copy of the same passage, and the two passages have something that's in disagreement. That would be a variant Do you realize that in the Bible that you hold in your lap or maybe that you have on your tablet, do you realize that there are over 200,000 variant readings in the Bibles that we possess? Does does that disturb anybody? When you think, okay, wait a minute, you're saying in in my hands, in my Bible, there are over 200,000 variants? There are, but the good news is that they only happen in about 10,000 places. So you won't have to look through all 200,000. You just have 10,000 places to look where you'll find these 200,000. Well, this one says, but of those 200,000 variants in about 10,000 places, only about one sixtieth of these variants are anything other than trivial matters. 
matters of whether the number is five or 50 or 500 or a, a number that we're not really, we're just trying to say, give you an idea of a number. Or if it's a plural or a singular, or if it had the definite article, these, are, these can be trivial matters. Only one sixtieth of the variants have anything to do with anything even remotely important. And in that one sixtieth, do you know that none of those variants have ever affected any major doctrine of Scripture? They all are, are non-essential issues that sometimes translators have to go, you know what, we really don't know if it was this, this, or that. We're, we're working hard to try to understand, hey, but pastor, does, does that have anything to do with any major doctrine of Scripture? Not a one. Now, when these folks are smarter than me, and I would point you to uh, Norm Geisler, who wrote the book, From God to Us, How We Got Our Bible in the English. Man, he'll break that thing down. It is an insomnia miracle. It'll put you right to sleep. But he'll tell you how those who are constantly in the manuscripts have looked at the, at the 200,000 variants in 10,000 places, only one sixtieth of them being even remotely outside of trivial matters and how they've discovered that by the thousands of copies that we have of the New Testament and several manuscripts, several, several thousand pieces of manuscripts that we have in the Old Testament, the Bible as it's been transmitted, not over just 2,000 years, but the 1500 to 2000 2500 years before christ came how all of those have come down the bible you hold in your hand mathematically speaking is 99.6 i believe percent accurate over all thousands of those manuscripts do you realize what that is let me tell you what that is that is the world's singular foremost literary phenomenon of all time. Of all time. There's nothing that comes close to the accuracy of all of the, and there's nothing that comes close to the thousands of copies. Let me give you some of these numbers. There are over 5,000 New Testament manuscripts. Of those, out of that 5,000, there are over 8,000 translations of those manuscripts and over a thousand other language translations. The Bible has so much more physical evidence than any other work in all of history. If you go to the university, you'll learn about Roman history. Roman history as recorded by Titus Livy, the Roman historian from the 1700s. Or I'm, I'm not sorry, 17, 17 AD, 17 AD. Titus Livy wrote the history of Rome. If you go to the university, you're going to learn world history that's going to have to do with Rome. And do you realize that there are only 20 manuscripts? What you know about Julius Caesar is based on 20 manuscripts. There's 5,000 New Testament manuscripts with 99.6% accuracy across the years, across the places that they were copied. We can answer the questions of why this variant is different than that on almost all of them. The Bible alone 
is authoritative. It is inspired and it teaches no error. The original documents, they're referred to as autographs and we don't have any of them. If you read your Old Testament, you will read a story that when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they made a real mess of things and they began to worship a golden calf and really upset God because that was totally not what he wanted them to do, idolatry. They began to complain, they began to moan, and at one time they moaned and complained about wanting to go back to Egypt, back to slavery, and God said, look, I'm gonna have to punish you. And he put them in a significant timeout where he sent snakes into their camp, and these snakes bit them, and whoever got bit by a snake, they died. And then the people were like, oh, our bad, Moses, how about go pray and ask God to tell him we're sorry, and what's he gonna do? And he had Moses make a, a snake out of brass and put it up on a pole, and everyone who looked at that snake was healed from the snake bite. You know what that looked a whole lot like? Something up on a hill on a stick and you look and... Okay, so it was a forerunner of the gospel. But you know what they did with that thing? They, they put it in a tent. They wrapped it up and they put it in a tent. And, and several decades later, something happened and they, they wanted to be closer to God. They wanted to have like a little rabbit's foot type thing going. And somebody said, hey, how about go get the snake? Let's put that out in front of us. It'll be our good luck charm. You know what we would do if we had the ability to get our hands on an original copy? It would be Indiana Jones all over again, thinking that we could go hold those tablets up and somehow God do what we want to do. We don't have those autographs anymore. But when we say God's word is inspired and inerrant in the original documents, we mean when he wrote it down. There are errors and variants in the versions and in the translations and in the copies, but there's 99% accuracy. We can hold very closely to the fact that the Bible you hold in your lap is the word of God as it's been accurately distributed throughout the centuries. But here's what we don't do. We don't say that one of those Bibles is more inspired and inerrant than any other. Now, we want you to like the version that you use as long as it's not the New World Translation because that's the one Jehovah's Witness did and there are errors in that. But any other, I mean, KJV, NKJV, NASB, I preach out of the ESV, NIV, TNIV, LINIV, NOPNIV, whatever it is, the, 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 the New Living Translation, New Century Version, the message, John Peters, Peterson's version, I mean, whatever you're going to read, you know what we want you to do? We want you to read it and do what it says. Because in your lap, you hold... Nine, over 99% accurate rendering of the originals. So the Bible alone is authoritative. It's inspired. It's inerrant in the original document. So what do we want you to do? Here's what we want you to do. We want you to get very familiar with your Bible. We want you to get very familiar with your Bible. Here's what we want you to do. We want you to read it. And we want you to read it and read it and read it and read it. I don't understand it. Well, keep reading it. Keep reading it. Keep reading it. Keep reading it in a translation that you enjoy. And then we want you to ask questions of it. When you don't understand it, we want you to say, I don't understand it. Ask questions, write it down. What does this mean? Who's talking here? Who's he talking to? What in the world is he talking about? How am I supposed to apply this to my life? Write those questions down. 
Then we want you to take another step. We want you to get answers to your questions. You say, can we bring you all of our questions? Yes, you can. As long as you're okay with the fact that I'm not going to be able to answer all your questions. But I tell you what we will do. We'll go on a search for the answer. Because I got volumes and volumes and volumes written by folks who are a whole lot smarter than I am who've been studying God's word for a whole lot longer than I have. And you know what we'll do? We'll ask all of them what they think. And then we'll talk about it. And we might even bring some other folks in on it and say, let's talk about this because I think that's what God's called us to do in wrestling with his word. Read it. Ask questions of it. Get answers to your questions. Memorize it. One of our folks said to me just the other day, I'm still memorizing God's word. You know what? He's not one of the spring chickens around here. And yet he still sees the value in hiding God's word in my heart so that when temptation comes, I'll have truth ready to battle because that's how Jesus battled the enemy when he tempted him through God's word. Memorize it. And then we want you to share it. Don't just keep it to yourself. Share it. You're with a friend who's going through something difficult. God brings scripture to your mind, a truth that will help them, a truth that will speak into what they're going through. Share it because that's what it's for. And then lastly, we want you to live by it. Do it. Do what it says. Don't just read it. Don't just share it. Don't just memorize it. Live by it. What it says about being a dad, do it. What it says about being a wife, do it. What it says about being a citizen, do that. What it says about being an employer, an employee, a servant of Christ, do that. Every now and then it'll say what not to do. Don't do that. Live by it. So what is our essential? Let's say it together. The Bible alone is authoritative. It is inspired and inerrant in the original documents. That's our essential number one. Next week, number two. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for our body together. We thank you for the privilege that we have of doing life with these brothers and sisters. I pray that you will unite us together around those core essentials that your word teaches us so that we might together contend for the faith that was delivered before we came along. And and God, you've given us the responsibility of, of delivering it on to the next generation. And may we be good stewards of the faith. May we be good stewards of your word. May we stand on that hill and may we not allow error to work our way off so we might stand strong for what you've given us to, to stand with. God, we ask that as we move into the next time of baptism, I pray that our attention will be on the resurrection of your son and the opportunity that we have when by faith we trust Jesus to identify with him through the ordinance of baptism. And we look forward to how we can celebrate together on the basis of what your son did. For it's in his name we pray. Everybody said? 